Hello and welcome to this week's episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on contemporary issues and current affairs in Singapore. This week, it's just the two of us, myself, PJ Thumb, and my brilliant co-host, Kirsten Hunt. So, Kirsten, how are you this week? I'm good. this for- fortnight, rather. I'm good. It's getting to the holiday mood now. Yeah, it's been a really intense year and I feel like uh, the whole team is actually quite exhausted from a a really demanding year. Yeah, so this is our last political agenda podcast for the year and also this week, the week that we're recording today is 11th December, is our last week for publishing original content this year. Cool. I think um, this has been the most challenging year of my life, um, but also in many ways the most rewarding and I'm really proud of everything we've achieved this year um, yeah and and of course in no small measure probably you've played the biggest role Kirsten I mean you've done a fantastic job leading this uh, the editorial team thank you I think we doing it from day to day you don't really think about how much has accumulated but I've spent the past weekend selling our book new narrative for the first year at the Freedom Film Festival and people would come up and say oh are these all your articles from the first year and I'd say, no, 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 it's only a selection of them. And they go, but the book is so big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what have you all been doing? <laughs> the book is huge. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's only English articles and it's only, um, you know, well, we had to f- fit it under 600 pages, basically. If we had included all the articles, it would have easily been twice that. Yeah, but that brings us to our new segment, hashtag Ask New Narrative. And uh, what question do we have this week? So this week, the questions that have come in over email were actually about the inclusivity of new narrative and how we can make what we do accessible to more communities. So there were questions about whether we hope to uh, make new narrative content available in more languages. Uh, And because we are working on an audiobook project where we are appealing to new narrative members to read articles from the first year book, uh, there were questions about whether we would read the non-English articles as well. Right. That's a really good question, and uh, thank you to everyone who wrote in. I think it's really important that uh, new narrative reaches out to as many people as possible, um, you know, to make our content as accessible as possible. I said at our launch, right, that, um, you know, we believe that we go further together, Right, that there is this really narrow-minded idea out there that in order to succeed, you have to basically climb over the backs of other people. You know that uh, um, I think some people have even said something about eating other pe- people's lunches, but that to me is an incredibly nihilistic sort of attitude about the world. Right, we have civilization because we recognize that. As uh, you know, humanity succeeds best when we work together and embrace a, a collective good, and uh, that's what new narrative is all about, and what we're trying to promote. So, in our vision of Southeast Asia and our vision of the world, nobody gets left behind, right? And this information that we're putting out, um, you know, is for, there's a lot of people who don't read on screens. They don't even have mobile phones. They don't have laptops, and that's fine. Um, and we want to be able to reach out to them. So the book is an experiment about putting together a print edition. The audiobook is uh, for those who may not be able to read, whether they have, you know, uh, tired eyes or uh, no time or visually disabled or, you know, just prefer it that way, right? And of course, languages, we want to put it in all the important languages of Southeast Asia, as many as possible. Um, our, you know, depending on our the limitations of our website, which physically cannot display certain languages at the moment and uh, our own resources and time. But yeah, it's... Um... <laughs> yeah, okay. what he said. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I went off on a bit of a mini rant there. And that's, uh, so that's hashtag Ask New Narrative for this uh, episode. Thank you again to everyone who sent in their questions. Okay, so New Narrative's uh, political agenda has talked very much about contemporary issues, you know, sort of more timeless, long-lasting issues which 
constantly arise, which are constant issues for any society over time. You know, you'll never resolve issues about discrimination or aging. You know, you can only um, improve and and constantly strive. Uh, But we have spoken less about current affairs, as in something that is topical right now. Um, I think of our podcast, you know, really only Crazy Rich Asians and maybe the Hawkers issue, although the Hawkers issue is also quite timeless in Singapore. Those were more current affairs, although they melded current affairs with, um, you know, contemporary issues. Anyway, so this week we're going to talk a bit about current affairs and all the stuff that's going on in Singapore. And so the first thing I thought we'd talk about is the succession and uh, supposedly, Heng Sui Kiat has been anointed as the chosen one and will lead the 4G team sometime after the next election, which Lee Sin Long will lead the PAP into and then hand over to Heng Sui Kiat after that. So what do we think about this, Kirsten? I think one question that's gone round is, you know, what do we know about Heng Sui Kiat? And that's yeah, one thing that I wonder cipher. all the time, you know, like as... So what does it mean for Singapore if he's going to be prime minister? What do we know about his politics and where will he lead us? Um, I've been asking people their impressions and generally people seem to be like, you know, he seems like a nice guy. He seems very hardworking. Um, but nobody can really quite answer what he stands for. Like we don't know what he, how he stands on issues of like 377A and LGBT rights. We don't know where he stands in terms of minimum wage and all these other issues that have come up in the news recently. We've seen him talk about consultation and while consultation is very nice, but what is the result and what what are his values? We don't know that for sure. Yeah, he actually reminds me in some ways of Sir Humphrey in uh, Yes, Prime Minister, in that he is a very, very good bureaucrat and very, very good civil servant, and a very, very good middle manager, right? Senior middle management. But what we want, what we need, what a country needs from its leaders, from its politicians, is someone with an actual vision who can articulate what, uh, or rather where Singapore is going to go, right? And who we are as a society, and how we're going to change, how we're going to evolve, how we're going to meet all these important issues and crises which... Um, face us. And, and this is something that I spoke about in my lecture. For those of you who listen to podcast number seven at the end, I, one of the points I made is that um, when crises arise, one way you respond to them, or, you know, a way which helps determine your response is to have a clear vision of where you want to go and what our values are and who we are, right? And through that vision, you can then articulate a response. But if you're just a sort of manager type person and your job is or you you see your job as maintaining the status quo, then by definition, you cannot cope with a crisis. And that's what I fear about Heng Sui Kiat, you know. Mm. But I I mean, there are a lot of people who felt, you know, better him than Chan Chun Sing. And I think that also goes into how opaque and how little input Singaporeans actually have into who is actually going to be Prime Minister. Because you can vote for the party during the election, but then they have the cadre system that's circular because the cadres um, elect the committee members, but the committee members select the cadres. So actually it's a very small minority of Singaporeans who actually have any say. Um, even the cadres don't get to say who's the prime minister, right? After you elect the committee, then they come together and they decide who is the first among equals. But So it's actually a system in which very, very few Singaporeans have a say in who the actual prime minister is. Um, yeah, it's basically yeah. just the cabinet, right? It's, it's kind of like the same system the Chinese Communist Party uses. And uh, of course, you know, the whole cadre system was, uh, well, Lee Kuan Yew said he came up with it. To Chin Chai said he came up with it. Someone came up with it in the 50s when democracy threatened to actually vote out uh, Lee Kuan Yew and To Chin Chai and their group from leadership of the PAP. And so they invented this system so that they could control who leads the party. And of course, that eventually led to the PAP splitting and two-thirds of the party leaving. But don't they, some of the opposition parties have the same system? I think the Workers' Party has yeah. the same. Yes, yeah. yes. So... It's, uh, I, I don't think that's a positive thing. Mm. <laughs> Ultimately, I think it's really important that 
um, parties are political parties are democratic if they well if they claim to stand for democracy yeah yeah and there are also only two thousand cadres or so uh, so in in the the PAP and then they elect a cabinet of what. A, you know, a CEC of what a dozen people who co-opt a few more, and then they decide between themselves who's leader. So ultimately, you know, a handful of people in Singapore, five million or so people, or how many citizens we have? Three point something, four About million. About three point five four yeah. million. And of that, like what twelve people, you know, decide. And you know, I think part of this dates back to the very first um, election within the CEC for who the prime minister should be. Because Lee Kuan Yew never forgot that he lost, uh, sorry, he won that election only because To Chin Chai had, as chairman, had the casting vote, right? They, after they won the 59 election, um, the uh, cabinet or the CEC voted as to who would be the prime minister, and it was deadlocked, and To Chin Chai voted for Lee Kuan Yew to break the tie. And so, you know, one more vote and um, Ong Eng-Guan would have been our first Prime Minister, who was then mayor, of course. So I think, um, you know, Lee himself, as he wrote in his autobiography, learned very much um, to fix the results of these things ahead of time, uh, you know, to use, I think, the words he used in his autobiography. And that system has very much continued. It's the system he's left behind today. But you were saying earlier, you know, some people thought, better Heng Sui Kiat than Chan Chun Sing. And this uh, kind of um, is, uh, you mentioned this in the article you wrote for Asia Times. Yeah, I mean, people seem to prefer Heng Sui Kiat to Chan Chun Sing, although I, I don't know if it's because Heng Sui Kiat hasn't made gaffes in the media in the same way that Chan Chun Sing has, because again, it doesn't seem to be enthusiasm for Heng Sui Kiat. It's more being unhappy with Chan Chun Sing. So, it seemed mm-hmm. like neither p- candidate for PM was that popular. It was <laughs> just, we would rather this guy than that guy. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think we've had, because we have so little political polling, we don't really know why people are saying that, because if all it is coming down to is a lack of public gaffes, then we are basically saying, well, Heng Sui Kiet seems better because he hasn't said anything dumb. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't hold problematic ideas. We just haven't heard of them yet. Um, so one of the things that came from that, and I've seen, uh, I think it, it was raised in the Asia Times article that I wrote, but also I've heard other um, commentators talk about, is that because of this lack of enthusiasm for anybody in the 4G, there might be a push to clamp down on dissent more. Because if you can't win the hearts and minds, then you clamp down on those who are but very publicly criticizing you. And so that's one of my worries, actually, that this leadership transition is going to be accompanied by clampdown. And we've seen that, you know, with um, investigations and charges against Jolivan for illegal assemblies or alleged illegal assemblies. We've seen current investigations for criminal defamation and, you know, all these things like... Leong Zihian shared a Facebook article without making any comment. He just clicked share and then now he's being personally sued by the Prime Minister. So all these things, I think, um, add up to make this really quite worrying picture. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, I hate to be, you know, proven right. I, I, I did say on Facebook a year ago that um, we can expect more backlash as the government feels more and more fragile and they are less able to win popular support, they're going to increasingly resort to methods of control and intimidation and fear to get their way. And it looks like that's what they're doing right now. And some of it is, is you know, it's, it's just so embarrassing and so cack-handed to sue someone for sharing an article on Facebook um, it's the sort of thing I think, you know, a lot of people mocked Thailand when people shared articles on Facebook and got arrested, you know, and uh, said very uncomplimentary things about their system and how, uh, you know, the, the use of less majesty over there. And now it feels like we are, you know, heading in a similar direction where even sharing an article on Facebook can get you 
sued, what does that say about us, about our society, about the mindset of our leadership, right? It is, uh, yeah, it's just very saddening. I mean, it has to be said that, you know, websites, like somebody asked me about this at the Freedom Film Festival when we were just hanging out outside the cinema. They, it has to be said that sites like States Times Review do very often put out articles that are inaccurate, that have fabricated quotes or really skew headlines. And, you know, yeah, those sites do very often put out fake news. So it's not to say that websites like that are completely blameless, but I think the issue is the proportionality of the response. So, you know, as a government, you have the biggest platform of anybody in Singapore to set records straight. You can issue press releases. Every PAP minister has their own Facebook page that they can issue stuff on and <laughs> thousands of people follow them. And so there, there are a lot of ways to clear things up. And Singapore is small enough that you know, your correction can spread and there are so many platforms that will be willing to cover whatever the government says that it's not really a problem to rebut these allegations. But then to, you know, for some time, you know, block the geo-block the website, try to demand that Facebook take stuff down and then use it as a basis to say we need fake news, anti-fake news laws. When what we've seen with both um, Zihen and Terry's case with the online citizen is that the IMDA already has the power to issue takedown orders and tell you to take things down within six hours. That's already very fast. And they both complied. And they both they? complied. Yeah. And so the the proportionality of the response is, seems really out of whack. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. There's no doubt State Times Review and others, they publish a lot of crap. Um, but for me, right, there's, there's two things. The first is that what does this say about how our government perceives us? They basically think Singaporeans are morons who will believe anything that is spread online. When quite clearly, you know, that is not true, right? Singaporeans, I think, are we're very open, globalized, exposed to all sorts of things. This whole debate about fake news in the past year has really um, made this term, you know, fake news or deliberate online falsehoods or whatever, it's become common currency. Right? And I've seen so many people now respond to the least thing shared with them to say, but real or not, you know, is this fake news or not? You know, so people are learning very rapidly. And it's very much like um, when advertising first became mainstream uh, in, in a lot of different industrializing societies. Um, and people initially just assumed that what they were seeing was true. And then they realized over time, you know, it, these are advertisements which deliberately put a certain point of view out, deliberately skew things because they want to sell a product or make money. And so people learn and people adapt very quickly to to these uh, you know new realities once um, there's been a, you know, a small amount of time for them to see the, the outcome. And the second thing that bothers me is actually hypocrisy because when you see articles which are, you know, have a lot of inaccuracies, right? Um, you know, without assuming any intent behind the article, but they have a lot of inaccuracies, but they are pro-government. You don't see the same crackdown. And I can stomach a government which is authoritarian if it is consistent, and at least then we know where they are. You know, because we know then they have certain values, certain beliefs, we can work with that and understand where they're coming from. But quite clearly here, it's only people who disagree with the government, people who, you know, things which are published, which um, are, you know, which which are anti-government or disagree with the government or, you know, things like that, which are cracked down upon. And that is, that to me is just hypocrisy. Yeah, I don't think I would stomach an authoritarian government anyway, but it is definitely yeah. way more irritating when, it's, when there's hypocrisy, I think. And, and one thing that worries me is that I these crackdowns actually create, I feel, an environment that makes it easier for fake news to thrive because you're basically taking away any opportunity for people to be challenged and to think for themselves whether, you know, this is reliable or not, right? So it, it kind of breeds this response where, oh, if the government hasn't cracked down on it or hasn't sued them or hasn't taken it down, it must be true. Yeah. Or, or, you know, just basically creating this 
kind of very polarizing effect because there's definitely uh, a lot of people who are like, oh, the government cracked down on the States Times Review because they have something to hide. And then it allows websites like that to then kind of play the victim and be like, oh, look, we're being martyred for telling the truth and speaking up for Singaporeans. And it creates this very us versus them polarized environment where some people are actually more likely to believe mm. all these claims just because the government tried to block it. And that was one of the things that was brought up in the UK when they they reviewed their own contempt of court laws. And the commission recommended the government to abolish scandalising the judiciary, which then uh, England and Wales did and then Scotland did as well. Because they said in the study, one of the things they felt was that this use of scandalising the judiciary has the danger of making people feel like it's used to cover up for the judges rather than protect the judges. And that creates more distrust because then people feel like you use that to shut people up from criticising judges because there's something to hide. Right. And so it's actually not good for public discourse. I think studies have also shown that uh, people in authoritarian countries are uh, more prone to conclude, um, you know, or assume that conspiracy theories are true, especially about politics, you know, that they're more prone to misinformation uh, because there isn't first that freedom of the press and then that freedom of the press and, and all these contesting views uh, you create um, a more discerning and informed um, citizenry, right? And so in authoritarian countries where there isn't freedom of the press, because they don't have that exposure to that diversity and the practice of talking normally about politics and discussing all the different issues involved, they tend to assume, oh, there's a conspiracy and someone up there is fixing it because that's how their politics works. Yeah, and it's dangerous, right? Because then what you get is the appearance of public trust without actually public trust. Mm. Because, and that's why our, our government says, you know, we must be super strict with contempt of court because there can't even be the slightest taint on the judiciary. Their, their reputation must be pristine. But then shutting everybody up doesn't mean that their reputation is pristine. You could still have a lot of people who secretly think that, you know, I don't trust this institution, but they're just not talking about it. And that makes it even harder to address than if someone could, you know, actually write a blog post or actually talk openly about it. And then you can address that sort of suspicion rather than everybody shutting up but then brewing their little conspiracy theories in whatever corner of Facebook that they hang out in. It's kind of like um, our government itself, the PAP, saying, you know, the citizens endorse this because we win elections every four or five years, but then they basically rig the elections to ensure or maximize favorable outcomes for the PAP. You know, through gerrymandering, through malapportionment, through GRCs and the town councils and all these requirements um, and the extremely, extremely short campaigning period, right? And, uh, of course, uh, the government-controlled media being, you know, very, very positive towards the government. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the sort of similar thing. If the government is so fantastic, if the PAP is so fantastic, then why can't they win a free and fair election, right? And I think it's, uh, it's the same sort of idea here that, um, you know, if someone's reputation is clear, then I think, uh, you know, you, you can talk about, about them and, um, you know, have uh, uh, an honest, informed debate about issues and let them speak and you speak and, and everyone speak in an environment of you know, mutual respect and... Um, and resolve issues that way. Yeah. You know, thinking about succession and elections, one thing I would really like to see in the next election is if they actually fielded, I don't think they will, but if they actually fielded Heng Sui Kiet and an SMC, then I would have a lot more respect for that than, mm. you know, if he actually won an election by himself rather than as part of like a five-person team. Oh, yeah. It would be way clearer what yeah. mandate he has because they're like, oh, you know, all these people have mandates and then they're all in these big teams. Like Chan Chun Singh's first contest wasn't even a contest because he was in Lee Kuan Yew's constituency and then nobody, yeah. nobody contested it, right? It was a walkover the first time. Uh, I think the second time he was kind of the anchor minister, but he was already, you know, in cabinet and and had already been given that head start. So I remember once he wrote this op-ed 
for Huffington Post in response to something that Dr. Chi Sun Juan of the SDP wrote. And he said he, he made some snarky comment about Dr. Chi never having won an election. And I was kind of like, wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> like you have, you know, like, yeah. yes, you did in a team, but, you know, in a team. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, as I always joke, you know, who, who are the other people who run with Taman in his constituency? Right. Can if you if you pick a random Singaporean, would they be able to name the other four people who run with Taman? I'm I'm not sure they I'm not sure we could. I think recently there was a there was an MP who whose question in Parliament went a bit viral, and he was getting laughed at because of all the things that he was asking. He asked some quite inane question about Singaporeans and vitamin D intake. Oh <laughs> right. <laughs> and then people were like laughing at that. And half of the time, the laughter was because n- people hadn't realized he was there. <laughs> like, they hadn't realized he was an MP, never heard of him before. I actually can't even remember his name now, that's mm. how. But yeah, that, I was thinking about it. Like, how many MPs do we have that we just don't remember are there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have nearly a hundred and I think, but a handful. Most, most of us would only be able to remember a handful. I guess that's not uncommon in bigger countries, but in bigger countries, they also have way more MPs. You would think we could remember our not, own Not necessarily. GRCs. You know, if you, if you look at uh, New York City um, and their, uh, just the city alone, right, which is far bigger than Singapore, but I think they only have 50 people in their legislative assembly, whatever it's called, plus the mayor, of course. You know, so a, a huge city like... Uh, New York gets by with half of the people that we do. Of course, we are a country, so we also need you know foreign ministry and trade and things like that. Um, but I I don't know if you necessarily if one correlates to the other. Mm. Yeah, I mean I don't know myself exactly what ministers in the prime minister's office do, <laughs> right. like ministers without portfolios, and. I've never been able to answer the question. Like some friends when visiting Singapore, they're like, so what do these guys do? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, that ignorance is, is just our lack of education, political education in Singapore. How does our government work? You know, what are the checks and balances? What are the branches government? Who's supposed to do what, right? All of this is really lacking in our education system. And, you know, I, I think... There is there are just so many restrictions on what people are or, or what our teachers are allowed to teach as well. Um, wasn't it a, a few podcasts ago? Migrant workers. Steffi was talking about. Yeah, so she was talking about um, junior college students coming to talk to her at home about migrant workers' issues, and she was talking about systemic institutionalized problems, and they kept focusing on like individual workers' welfare or teaching about rights. And she kept trying to bring up these systemic issues and then the students basically said that they couldn't do their assignments in a way that would criticize policy. And that becomes really problematic when all these issues that are political are so depoliticized. And I think it gets us to a point where we don't know what members of parliament are for and we don't know what politics is for like recently this um, volunteer for ready for repeal went to see his MP Lee Biwa and then she kind of like gave him the brush off and said that she had people with real problems and he just posted the account on Facebook and lots of people were saying oh it's your own fault for barging into that meet the people session Uh, I don't know how he was meant to have barged while also taking a queue number but they're like, you know, you, that's the wrong venue. You shouldn't go and talk to an MP about this. You are politicizing the issue. And, you know, and, and it was just like, it, it was really, I, I found it kind of alarming because it, it showed me how many Singaporeans don't seem to realize what an MP is for. And they're like, oh, you know, the, the meet the people session are for people with real problems like, you know, HDB loans and whatever, <laughs> you know, bread and butter issues oh that you God. need an MP to write a letter. And I was like, no, but going to see your MP to lobby your MP on 377A is probably far closer to the original purpose of having an MP than asking her to write a letter to LTA so she can get you off your parking fine, you know? like 
David Marshall would be is probably turning over in his grave right now because that is exactly, you know, the the whole political issue is why he created Meet the People sessions because he felt that there was so much distance between the um, elected representatives up high with the civil servants and bureaucrats and people on the ground. They didn't understand how things worked. That there was, you know, too much too many barriers and he wanted to bring politics down to the ground and you know where where it's supposed to be right and and have the people who are most affected by these policies by these by all this politics to be able to have a say participate and speak directly to their elected representatives about the issues that they care about and you know i think this is part of the this broader um long-term strategy that Lee Kuan Yew started, um, again, you know, very smart man with his um, strategy to depoliticize politics in Singapore and turn it into uh, an administrative kind of uh, environment where decisions are made by disinterested, as in disinterested means neutral, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of experts, bureaucrats who are supposed to impartially weigh up the options. And in that way, you achieve several things. The first is that politicians don't have to take responsibilities for political decisions. They can push it onto a panel of experts, a committee, bureaucrats, civil servants, you know, a professional body, a stat board, whatever, and say, it's not us, it's them, right? And And then... Um, at the same time, right, it makes it it increases the distance between the people and their elected representatives because then these other bodies basically run interference and and come in between the elected representatives and the people. Mm-hmm. And of course, part of that is also the uh, you know making legitimate politics illegal, right? And the fact that uh, you require so many permits and there are so many rules to to, to exercise your basic constitutional rights is part of that same trend. And there were so many things which we could do in the 50s and 60s in terms of being able to speak and protest and exercise our constitutional rights to uh, political expression that we cannot do today, you know? And it is, it's, it's always such an irony that the PAP as founded in 1954 could not exist today because that party was a radical left-wing socialist Malayan party dedicated to democracy, freedom of expression, it organized rallies, it organized protests, it uh, you know helped put together people in, in trade unions, student groups, political organizations, and recognized that you know one fundamental point they made from the beginning is everything is political. Right when the colonial government said, you know, oh, don't politicize this issue, the PAP's response is everything is political, and and that's absolutely right. Everything in life, you know, is political because politics is fundamentally how do we organize our society, how do we divide up scarce resources, how do make we make decisions for collective good. So everything is related, and that's yeah, it's it's uh, almost a hundred eighty degrees from where it originally was. Yeah, to the point where Heng Swee Keat the the gold star civil servant is now going to be the next prime minister. And I think, you know, when that brings us back again, when I was reading the news articles about Heng Swee Kit, you know, when it emerged that he was going to be first assistant secretary general of the PAP, then you had these really kind of effusively complimentary articles in the mainstream media and today in the Straits Times. And the qualities that they were emphasizing were that sort of very administrative, depoliticized, you know. He likes to listen to people. He led our SG conversation. He's very consultative. <laughs> he likes to talk to people. He um, he works very hard. The Straits Times had this anecdote that um, said when, after he had that aneurysm and he collapsed, the first thing he scribbled on a piece of paper when he woke up from the kit 
well, from his coma was, is there a cabinet meeting today? Where are the papers? And I really would like a fact check on that because that sounds like BS. Like, does anybody really... It, you come out of a coma, that's really the first thing you scribble a piece of paper. Um, it sounds like one of those sort of mythologizing your political leaders sort of thing. I don't know if that's true. Um, oh boy, what that's, I found really funny yeah. was someone had commented on, on my Facebook that if my husband had a stroke and the first thing he says when he wakes up from a coma, not about the family, but it's like, is there a cabinet meeting today? The next papers he'll be signing is <laughs> his divorce papers. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it's, it, it's very reminiscent of Kim Jong-un, isn't it? You know, Kim Jong-un at, at the age of six years old invented a new, you know, whatever way to... Uh, teleport through time or whatever you know it, it's it's that sort of mythologizing does a complete disservice to Heng Swee Kiet I think who you know really needs to you know earn his own reputation his own legacy and um, his, his own backing for the people and right now it feels like he's being doomed to fail because he's being so boosted and mythologized and anointed that ultimately, is anyone going to believe that he got, he he you know got where he he's going on his own merit, or is he the just you know picked by the previous generation, mm. you know to be the next leader? And does he actually have a popular mandate, right? Which keeps I think being the thing that is lost, right? He is an elected politician. Does he have a popular mandate? Do people actually want him to be the prime minister? And last I checked, we're still supposed to be a democracy and these questions are not being asked. Yeah, it's the same disservice that was done to Halima Yaakov, which was, you know, also unfair to her because she is now forever going down in history as the selected president because they decided to reserve it for Malays only, that she only became president because they rigged the election and it was unfair and that she only became president because only Malays could run anyway, which is really unfair because I think Halima was popular enough mm. among Singaporeans to have won a presidential election on her own steam. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people who, if they had an open election between her and Tan Cheng Bok and whoever else, would probably have voted Halima, um, you know, because they'd seen the work that she'd done. And, and she has done, you know, good work, asked good questions in Parliament before she became Speaker of Parliament. So it did, it did seem like a pity that our first... Um, woman president and our first Malay Muslim woman president will forever be attached with the line but then the election was extremely unfair so that's why mm. she won but then Heng Swee Kiet himself I think is also not helping himself by not speaking out more and not making his positions more clear and not giving Singaporeans something to you know get behind believe in like for example this whole border standoff Right. What is Heng Swee Kiet's position on it? You he know? said something about it being a sovereignty issue. Right. But yeah. And that yeah. seems to be... That's totally generic. <laughs> I mean, every, you know, of course, it's a border issue. It's sovereignty. Sovereignty of states is important. But what, you know, what is his vision for Singapore-Malaysia relations, for example? Right. Mm. And that comes back to this bigger issue. What is his vision for where we're going to go in relationship to our biggest and most important neighbor? You know, and how is he going to lead that relationship as prime minister? Right. It's very easy to say, okay, so, so this specific thing is a sovereignty issue. Yes, of course it's a sovereignty issue. No one wants foreign countries invading. You know, the sanctity of these borders is really important in the current world order, rule of law, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But what is his bigger vision? Mm. What is he going to do with Malaysia? What is he going to do about Malaysia, right? And Indonesia. These are our really important neighbours and Singapore relies so heavily on them and we need some coherent vision of where we're going to go with this. And I don't get a sense of any of that. I mean, I'm quite, I've been quite disturbed by the sort of rhetoric that comes out of, um, that comes from members of the government. Not every member, but some of them. And... You know, like, at this, in the same breath of saying we are not trying to be jingoistic, Tan Chuan Jin shares this video um, that is supposed to explain the issues that we have with Malaysia about the Salita 
airport and the airspace about the maritime dispute at Tuas and the water agreement. And yeah, fine, explain these things to Singaporeans because they are complex bilateral um, issues. It's hard to explain. People don't usually understand them. But then the problem with the video is that it gets very emotive also. It keeps going, why is Malaysia doing this? And then at one point it goes, is it to destabilize Singapore, to uh. test the mettle of our leadership, to undermine our racial harmony? And then it gets really... And, and then, you know, in, in the comments of the video, he's like, nobody's trying to be jingoistic. But I'm like, but I, if that's not jingoistic, I don't know what it happens when you are trying to be jingoistic. Because it's really worrying and it's quite dangerous rhetoric. It, it stokes up a lot of sentiments that will not help peaceful bilateral engagement. Yeah. I mean, it's stoking up sentiments where elderly uncles showing up at meet the people sessions saying that if we are being attacked I want to go into the army and defend our nation and yeah you know um, if if Malaysia is making incursions into our territorial waters and things like that yeah that is a problem that needs to be dealt with but nobody is getting attacked you know they're not doing it because they're gonna invade or bomb Singapore it's you know, it's not in anybody's interest mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia for Singapore to be like reduced to rubble. And so it's, it seems really troubling if the, if the 4G leadership and Tan Chuan Jin is, you know, he's Speaker of Parliament, but he is still in that central committee of PAP. If these are the sorts of things that they are kind of dog whistling. Yeah, it's really dangerous for Singapore, I think. Yeah, it's uh, well, sad thing. It's reminiscent of Trump, isn't it? And how he is, you know, whipping up his base by attacking Canada, by attacking Mexico, and I mean, are there any two countries which are more reliant on the U.S. than the two of them? But you know, he he makes Canada and Mexico look like uh, enemies and, and threatening the American way of life, which is crazy because America is so much richer than the two of them. And sadly, it feels like it's the same thing. We have politicians taking the irresponsible but easy way to rallying the base by creating an external enemy that you, know, you can then rally behind. And I think uh, Ian talked about this in our first podcast, right? Nationalism and how important it is, um, you know, or, or rather how it's central to nationalism, not just to define your nation, but to define yourself in opposition to someone else as a way of then, um, you know, motivating or, or building up this idea of uh, or, or pulling together people behind the nation, right? And it feels like uh, that's what they're they're doing. I guess, you know, like that the militarism in Singapore is never that far below the surface. Yeah, yeah. If we talked about in that podcast talking about how the National Day Parade is a very militaristic display. So when it comes to, you know, if militarism is always kind of a constant that's just under the surface of what we talk about, it's not it's not strange that the moment there's any sort of bilateral dispute, then the idea of war and we must fight to defend yeah. ourselves comes to the top very quickly. It's um, World War One, um, you know. I mean, when when your solution is, you know, and when militarism permeates everything, all the other solutions get forgotten about, right? And there are so many other ways to address these issues and to deal with these issues and instead we are saber rattling which is very dangerous because even if the politicians know it's just saber rattling there's going to be many people who sincerely believe that yes you know we are on the verge of being invaded that our whole way of life our whole society is being threatened when it's quite clear that nothing of the sort is happening mm, i very think there's also a lack of real awareness of just how codependent we are on each other, Singapore and Malaysia. Because on social media, there were people talking about, oh, over this, we should boycott Malaysia and don't buy or use anything from Malaysia. And I was just kind of like, do you know how quickly we would just run out of food and water and toilet paper and all sorts mm. of stuff? You know, how, and you know, I saw like someone had posted that and immediately below 
was this guy who was like, so I should stop talking to my auntie? Because she's like Malaysian. How many Singaporeans have relatives who are Malaysian? So what do you mean boycott Malaysia? We, we are much more intertwined in our daily lives than we, we might care to acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it, it really flabbergasted me that people didn't know Singapore's own history and the fact that we are part of Malaya, which is a historic and geographical term that includes the whole Malay Peninsula. And the reason why I think people don't realize this is, of course, because our government has worked very hard to build a distinctive Singaporean, quote-unquote, nation and identity and a separation um, of us, you know, quote-unquote, us from, quote-unquote, them over the past 50 years. Um, But this has also, I think pushed us away from the people who are the not just the most like us, but we used to be the same country, right? Before World War II, you just crossed the border at will. You know, there was no border, right? And it was only during the Japanese occupation that there were checks. And after World War II, the British then imposed partition by dividing Singapore from the rest of Malaya and in particular from uh, the rest of the straight settlements, right, which were one uh, political unit. Um, Singapore, Malacca and Penang were, were one single unit governed from Singapore. And so, you know, to some extent, this is about the arbitrariness of political borders, but it's also about this denial of Singapore's simple geography. We are in Malaya and we are codependent on the Malayan Peninsula. Right, whether Sabah and Sarawak and their role and how they work into this the whole economy is another issue, and of course there's Indonesia. But you know, Singapore is and the and West Malaysia, Singapore and West Malaysia are codependent on each other, and nothing in nothing can change geography. And we are so intertwined with with West Malaysia that uh, you know it's we we will never be able to get away from that. But that hasn't stopped governments um, from trying to make us forget about that for the sake of nationalism, which then creates this contradiction because we are using the people we most depend upon as the other. And this creates a situation where we are attacking the people uh, or, or fearful of the people whom we also need the most and, you know, the opposite is also true for them. Mm. But on that, then on a related topic then, how do you feel about this bicentennial of modern Singapore that oh, Lee Sien Long is going to mark in Don't January? Don't get me started on that. <laughs> We've been talking for, what, an hour already? That This will be at least another hour of me <laughs> ranting. The, the fundamental stupidity, not, well, stu- not stupidity, but just the, the, the sheer ignorance of... Celebrating one's own colonization is staggering to me. You know, just just start with that, right? Who on earth celebrates your own subjugation by a foreign country? And and that's the that's part of the problem with how the PAP government has portrayed history, because an understanding of Singapore as a Malay island, which we are, a Malayan island. Um, which we also are, right, would then, in their eyes, undermine our independence and sovereignty, which is, of course, ridiculous. These are not, you know, these are separate things. It's not like Malaysia is going to be part Indonesia, even though they have a shared heritage and language. And, you know, let's not get into where Chendol comes from or Rasa Sayang or Batik. It comes from the whole region, honestly. You know, you, these, all these things came about long before we had nation states. Right, but in order to build this idea of Singaporean nationality and Singaporean identity, we had to separate ourselves from this Malay, Malayan identity. And that means instead of celebrating us for who we are, they, they latched on to this uh, whole British narrative and a continuity that starts with Raffles. And so you glorify Raffles and his vision, and then you build a history based on that that continues on from that which the PAP inherits as you know this idea of modernity of 
rejection of um, our past, looking towards a future. And this has severe consequences for how we think of ourselves as a people, right? Because it's not just about modernity, but then it means we become very insecure because we're cut off from our immediate surroundings and we are constantly fearful and paranoid because there's, you know, this... Um, uh, this portrayal of our immediate neighbors as being unlike ourselves or even hostile to us, you know, and this um, idea that we become almost when you keep saying that colonialism, the colonial power, was a good thing, you forever you're telling your citizens that to be subjugated was a good thing. And it locks us into this very enslaved mindset, right? That we, uh, you know, being dominated and subjugated and colonized was fundamentally, at the end of the day, a good thing for us. You know, and that is very destructive to our psyche. So I think, you know, then one of the questions that comes up, because we spent, what is it, quite some time talking about all these issues that seem kind of negative, you know, like... Um, a succession that people are not very enthusiastic about, the fear that this succession will then bring clampdowns and crackdowns, and then maritime disputes that raise fears about jingoism, and then now we're going to celebrate our own subjugation. So, so then I guess the question is, why are we still here? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what is it about this that, that keeps us here? Like, what, what, is it, what is it about this that keeps you in Singapore rather than being like, screw this, I'm going to Oxford forever. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, for me, of course, you start with family, you start with friends. Um, but at the end of the day, I think Singapore is, I think, well, for me, I have a very visceral relationship to my country and my flag because I was an, a national athlete. And from a very young age, I broke into the national team at 14 and, you know, was uh, represented the country and, you know, there's the whole English channel. Uh, so doing, like, from a very young age, I was out there representing my country and my people and hugely proud of it and always felt it was such a privilege to be able to um, represent my people and the best of who we could be. And for me, being able to continue to do that is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's integral to who I am. Uh, I, it's very much um, part, of, part of me, you know, this love of country, this love of people. And honestly, the... I, I believe that Singapore is so close to being a place that could be such a truly great example for so many great things for everyone else in the world, right? People talk about Singapore with so much respect. And with a few tweaks, we could be so much more, so much better and uh, exercise leadership in a, in a world, you know, in the world in, an, in, a, in a really... A significant way and um, and that's that's why I'm here right so it's 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 a whole bunch of different things love of country love people my family my friends but also the chance to really make a difference and where else in the world do you have that opportunity um, apart from your own homeland right and if you know if, if if you I feel like if you can't do it in your own homeland um, you know then where else are you going to to achieve this where else are you going to do this right. yeah it's uh, it's almost it's part responsibility um, you know just part love um, part yeah, I think part responsibility and part love, I think, would be the best way to summarize it. I think, yeah, that's true. Like, there is something about Singapore that 
makes it feel like even when you know I'm like taking the bus and just walking on the street that makes it feel a bit more like this is my turf sort of thing you know like I can I can read the news about Trump and I can read the news about Brexit and yes there's a lot of bad news but I can also then tell friends from the US or the UK of like oh that's terrible and then continue with my day because I kind of understand that it's terrible and I want to support people and activists there. But at the same time, it's it also feels a bit like, but it's not really my place to be super vocal because it's not where I grew up. It's not a context that I deeply understand. It's not, you know, my I have l- a bit less skin in the game than everybody else, like than Americans and British people. Um, and so it's easier to then kind of detach from that a little bit uh, whereas in Singapore I don't feel quite that way because it feels like no this is where I grew up this is where family is this is where friends are um, whatever happens here has quite immediate and direct impact on the people I care about most in this world and because I'm a Singaporean I feel like I do have this right or I should mm-hmm. have this right yeah. to be as vocal about this as I am like I wouldn't want to go to the US and start preaching to people about their issues on race or inequality or whatever but I feel like in Singapore I have this right to say that because I have grown up here I have kind of basically well not by my choice from being born but I have put in the time you know Um, and so there's that I think and also there's this sense that we are not fully what we can be and you know, one thing that really spoke to me when I was at this summer institute on uh, civil resistance in Boston was this um, civil rights activist who who said this one sentence that really stuck with me because he said, um, I'm a citizen of a country that does not yet exist. You know, I am a citizen of a country, my country, that should be better, that should be more just, more equal, but this does not yet exist. And... And I think that's true of a lot of contexts and it definitely speaks, it's something I can relate to as a Singaporean that I feel like I am a citizen of a Singapore that does not quite yet exist, yeah. but could. And and so many things could be better. And when I see, and I think it really crystallized for me when I started um, going to more events and speaking to members of the old left and the old student activists from the 50s and 60s that really gave me a glimpse of a Singapore that, that was quite drastically different yeah. and a mindset that was very drastically different. And it really brought home that, you know, the things that I've been told growing up in Singapore, that Singaporeans are not political, that we are apathetic and we don't protest because it's not in the Singaporean DNA, it's not <laughs> part of our values. It, these are things that we just fundamentally don't do. Um, it really brought home that that's not true. We were not born this way to be anti-protest and anti-collective action we were made this way and i think that really provided a lot of motivation because it made me feel like well first if we were not born this way and we were made this way we could be unmade and things can be reclaimed it's not you know that's not the limit of my political imagination there's actually further that i can go and i found that really kind of inspiring and so I think that's why I do it because it feels like there is a huge possibility out there that we can um, examine. And I do see it in Singaporeans. I see it in um, you know university students who are constantly calling and saying we want to make films, we want to do infographics, we want to do blogs, we want to do uh, forums and panels, and so many things that they want to do. And to me, I think that's inspiring because then the question is how can we then support them and facilitate them to do all these things that they want to do, uh, while, of course, advising them of the risk, because there, it is not without repercussion in Singapore. But we, how do we advise them of the risk, but not stop them from doing all these things that they want to do? Because a lot of students approach me and they say, we want to do all these things, but we constantly meet adults who say, don't do it, or you can't do it, or it can't be done, or it's a lost fight anyway. Mm. So I guess you know, seeing that sort of potential, how can we keep that going? And I think that's one thing that, you know, I would, like, I love working on new narrative because it feels like we are space creators. Yeah. And we're creating space for these students. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have. Um, I think that's that's you know a really really good way of putting it, and thank you for 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 that. I think it's really important um, to remember that there are so many people out there who want change, and their views matter. You know, and we keep hearing these same myths about. Uh, you know, as you say, Singaporeans are not political, etc., etc. But I have yet to meet a Singaporean who wasn't political, right? They'll always say it's other Singaporeans who are not political. They'll never say I'm. You know, I I care. I can see this, but it's other people. And I'm always like, who are these other people? I've never met these other people. These mythic other people. And this is one of the most pernicious myths out there. That's really destructive. You know that. You you know we're told that other people aren't going to care that Singaporeans don't care. It, it's not true. You see it all the time. People care. People are very political. And what, as you you know as as you've summarized so beautifully, what we're trying to do is create space. And I, I think, on that note, you know, on to our second year, and on to creating more space for the people of Southeast Asia who want to imagine things differently and imagine things better. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's it for this episode. So thank you all for listening and um, Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful end of 2018. If you'd like to get your friends uh, a gift, may we suggest a new narrative subscription? It's only fifty-two US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week, or five US dollars a month, or a copy of our book, New Narrative, the first year, only forty dollars, forty Singapore dollars, uh, and online or um, at our website or at, at hopefully at a at the, a bookstore near you. And we'll also be off for the last two weeks of the year, uh, not just for the holidays, but because we believe at New Narrative that uh, your health, your physical and mental health should take precedence over work, over your job. And so one of the things that we're doing is basically everyone is going to take at least Christmas to New Year off. So New Narrative will be off for the last two weeks of the year and we will be back in the new year and, uh, you know, with lots more great stories, podcasts, videos, and um, lots more other things planned. So thanks very much, everyone. And we'll see you in the new year. Yep. See you in 2019.